Hello and welcome to episode 30 of the Data-Driven Security Podcast. Want to learn how to do more with your data? Join me, Charles Gurry, at Black Hat 2016 for the Crash Course in Data Science. Early registration ends soon, so register now. Welcome to episode 30 of the Data-Driven Security Podcast. My name is Jay Jacobs, and Bob Rudis has the week off. Uh, but Bob and I were able to get together and talk with people about this year's data breach investigations report from Verizon. But unlike other people talking about the report, we focus on the visualization aspect, the ability for the data visualizations to communicate the messages and the data and the, the messages that the report is trying to communicate. And uh, like last year, we have Lane Harrison joining us again. Uh, but since Bob and I didn't work on it, we invited two people from Verizon to uh, talk with us on the podcast. And we have Anastasia Tenisoff and Gabriel Bassett. It may be helpful to download the Data Breach Investigations Report from Verizon and follow along because we refer to figures and pages and things like that as we're talking about it. And we don't always describe the pictures. And like every guest, we ask them to start out introducing themselves and talking about what got them here. I'm Gabriel Bassett. I'm a senior information security data scientist on the Verizon security research team. So the team that writes the DBIR. Um, I'm one of the ones that has to do a lot of the data work, the cleaning, converting, um, analysis, and things like that. Anna, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Anastasia Atanasoff. I'm also on the Verizon security research team as a new data scientist. Uh, my background is in information security and mathematics, so my primary roles involve statistical and exploratory analysis of the actual data. Well, welcome to both of you. And so the, the reason we're going to have you on is we're going to go through some of the visualizations and some of the things that you guys did and your treatment of the data and presentation of that. And to help us go through this uh, is Lane Harrison. Lane, you are on last year for the DBIR with Bob and I when Bob and I were participating in it and helping out creating it. And we wanted to have you back this year uh, as a routine, I think, to, to come back and talk about the DBIR. So, Lane, why don't you talk about uh, who you are? Good to be back. I'm Lane Harrison, assistant professor at uh, WPI. I just finished my first year here. Uh, I run a data visualization group. We work in uh, data viz and uh, human-computer interaction, um, doing research about how people extract information from charts and how we can use that to make charts better. Great, and that's exactly why you're on, because you're going to help us understand and use some of these charts, and you're going to be you're going to be the um, academic in the whole group. So yeah, I'll try to be the counting any for that one. Exactly. All right, well, let's jump into this, and um, I think we should start with any overall things, uh, any overall impressions. And anybody want to jump in for an overall impression? How how hard did you fight to to go against the color palette that you ended up having to use? Oh, I tell you, every figure in there was Veritas, and I, I put like I put them all in actual Veritas colors, hoping that I get one in, and they scratched the one I thought I was going to get in. Um, in fact, I even reordered their colors to be more relevant to have a better first color, and the figures I gave them had a better first color, and they reordered them to put that blue up front. That's pretty interesting. I have a question about that. 
how can we convince people to actually use a good color palette? Are they thinking that it's something to do with like marketing, brand, that sort of thing? Yeah, and in fact, we actually got away from the marketing, like the official marketing stuff. The, the uh, layout people went against the official story and they added colors for us because originally there were like literally six colors or eight colors in the palette and we needed 12 or 14. And so they actually produced a specific palette for the DBIR, but it still keeps kind of close to the, uh, the, the official trend, which is the, the pastels and stuff. You know, the reality is it's, it's the brand, and if the report is supposed to be identifiable against the overarching brand for the organization, it's hard to pull over into other color palettes. Yeah, I can comment a bit on that. I'm not super well-versed in uh, the British color palette, but there's been some really interesting research in uh, recent years about categorical color theory and how we can construct color palettes that are recognizable past you know, uh, you know, I guess the 10 or 15 or 20 that you can get from things like Color Brewer. Um, so, yeah, there's some, some interesting work going on. Actually, Tableau is uh, kind of heading this up. So I would expect that you would see that in future years. I don't have any other insider info besides, you know, uh, knowing Tableau's research. But hopefully it translates. So the, the, the color then, because of those colors, is that why you, in some of these we get this um, baby blue and the gray there are actually two, maybe three, official grays that we were allowed to use that were in the color palette. There are actually more grays than any other type of color, unfortunately. But, yeah, they used the grays for anything that was not an actual bar or kind of filled object. Okay. What do you think it would take to convince, you know, a team that comes up with these color palettes? Apparently they have, you know, the, the, the will of marketing behind them. Um, but what would it take to convince them to to use something that we know is better. Are we not telling the story you know, well enough that, that choosing a good color palette actually helps with information, attention, and retention, uh, the way that people process well, and use the data and even remember the data in the first place? Well, I think, I think marketing colors are much different than data viz colors. You know, there's a, when you're looking at a logo, there's different, I, I don't know if you've seen any studies about this, but it seems like there's a different part of the brain that gets activated. It's a much different purpose. It's a much different attention span and, and things like that. So I don't know. I think I think that they're different. And I think that this is part of the problem with these reports that you get this marketing group that gets the color palette for icons and graphics and brochures and then tries to apply them to data viz and you get sort of this problem area. Yeah, I'm I'm fairly certain that the the marketing colors are designed to penetrate the hangovers that RSA. <laughs> That's true. I guess figuring out who made the chart. But that's really interesting. I, I agree with you completely. And I think uh, what should be done further is to tell the story. Why do we actually want to use things like Veritas and you know other research-backed color palettes? I mean, maybe using a marketing color palette is at odds with the overall goal of the report. So you can market it and brand it, but if it's less effective and it's used less, uh, if you could kind of make that sort of argument, um, that, that might help with kind of fighting the good fight. Well, and the yeah. question is, who are you making the argument to, right? Because the people we talked to um, and that did our layout and, you know, clean up the visualizations were not the people who picked the color palette. You know, those guys were the corporate uh, brand uh, managers. And so, you know, no matter what um, story I, you know, how well I convince the marketing guys that I'm working with, you know, they still are somewhat beholden to the rules that they're given. 
And so we would have to move that conversation about here's why these color palettes are better um, back up the chain to people who get to pick the original picks. Yeah, I think that makes sense. But I feel like, you know, in the perfect world, if you could come to the marketing people and say that the effectiveness of the report is halved by the fact that you want to use uh, crappy colors, um, maybe that would, you know, kind of sway them. Probably not, yeah. but hopefully. It, it, it's a political discussion at that point, right? So you're just you're trying to convince someone of something that they don't believe in the first place. So. That's true. We can point to evidence. Yes. Another overall comment, uh, and we could probably talk about this when we get into the specific figures, but there's obviously a lot of bar charts, and this is for a very good reason, right? We're generally there, you're looking at categories and you're looking at proportions of those categories across events and things like that. But visually, and this is a overall thing because any any specific bar graph is just fine on its own, but when you start to put multiple bar graphs together, one thing that we struggled with, and Bob, I know you and I worked on this last year, was to have all of the bar widths the same across figures, which right. is subtle. It's a very subtle thing, right? Yeah, there's the for things like Excel or even D3, those are sort of standard options. I, I think Microsoft and and Mike Mike Bostock and there's other. I mean, I'm sure Tableau does it too. They they do they actually have built-in ways of doing that automatically. But R tends to scale to the graphics device, as, as does a lot of the different Python visualization libraries as well too. So you have to either change the width of the the viewport, or you have to do like things like hack it so that the, there's the same number of factors. Um, if you're going to be doing bar charts with factors, and and make sure that they're all the same for the width. But there's a lot of hacks to do that, and um, that's really I guess that's a good question. Uh, when you were working with that, and when you were working with those the graphics design team there, did did they have any influence on trying to standardize some of that stuff, or was it more of just there's so many charts that you have in there that it was just like, let's get them out and let's get it in the report? Ultimately, it's just something that no one said anything about. As we were doing these, you know, I was sitting there thinking, because these are all done, you know, with R and with Knitter, thinking, you know, really I should be probably be exercising some control over the uh, viewport, but I just never went back and did it or never said what is what's it going to take to make the bars all kind of roughly the same size, and I just completely spaced it. Yeah, when I when I did that in previous years, it was a complete hack because I would compute how many factors were in the bar, and then I would actually compute the the viewport, the size of the plot itself, and then uh, generate that dynamically in the actual when I knitted the uh, the images. So can I ask the uh, the why question? Is it just for looks? I yeah, mean, why absolutely. would you want consistent bars across? Well, if you look at figures 23 and 24 on pages 28 and 29, there's uh, they're they're about the same width actual plot-wise, but then the bars one is like at least two and a half, almost three times wider than the one beneath it, and this is just I mean like if you can get both on the screen at the same time, they really stand out as being very very different. It's like a different perspective. You know, like on one, it feels like you're kind of backed up, and then the next one, it kind of you kind of want to lean in a little bit more. And the the two of them together just kind of changes, I think, the feel as you're going through it. I think that's a really great observation. I don't know what the right answer is here. Um, you know, whether they should be consistent or not. Uh, one thing that comes to mind is uh, Michelle Borkin at Northeastern University. She's done a lot of studies on memorability, and uh, she's found things like you know having human recognizable objects help people remember. Uh, so some of the pages with uh, different types of figures on that, or even a logo, 
um, tends to help people remember not necessarily the data, but just that they've seen it before. It helps with recall. Um, but I wonder if, like, even elements of the chart itself, so some changes in, you know, the, the bar size, um, sort of helps people with recall. Uh, it may help with, you know, data processing, too. I have no clue, just kind of speculation. And one of these trends that's been kind of uh, emergent and controversial in the biz community. So it's interesting to see it crop up here. You know, you said something there that I want to pivot off of one second. So what she said, basically what you talked about there is that when people, when you have like icons and stuff, like I know we've always fought with the PR folks and marketing folks that they wanted to put, you know, an icon of a spider and a, you know, a lock for security and all these little icons for different things. And I think that's essentially what you said in that study, right? When you have this sort of picture in there, it makes it more memorable. That, that is what has been found more than once now in, in two separate studies. So that's okay. So whether or not that's the right thing we should be doing, I mean, it's, so people raise the, the concern, okay, how does that help people retain information in the chart? That's what we should be doing as visualization researchers. That's what uh, our Lord and Savior Tufty would say. Um, you know, how can we help people remember what's in the chart itself? But the study doesn't look at that. The study actually was motivated off of what's done in the design world, uh, what's done in information graphics, yeah. and whether it has an effect. And there is certainly an effect there that people uh, can recall where the charts are at least more memorable. Um, I, I personally, yeah. you know, I'm not a fan of the locks and spiders and that sort of thing. I think it looks right. super goofy, but we're also not, we're not the rest of the world. I, I think uh, uh, people who especially would listen to this podcast are part of the uh, enlightened um, who well, it may not matter whether there's a spider on it or not. Uh, yeah. That's the way they remember it. I'll admit that, like, in the at-a-glance section, I voted against that eye fervently, and I lost. Hey, maybe maybe it's uh, not all a loss. <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> One of the things you mentioned, Lane, was actually fairly relevant, the idea that different types of figures or different elements kind of cue people to remember. And one of the things that... Um, I think it's relevant to this group is both that we use some um, visualizations that are harder to read, um, and, but part of the reason that we kind of chose to mix it up a bit, so to speak, was to kind of provide some unique ways of looking at the data to keep it from being all being too consistent throughout the entire report, so that it all blend. Make sure it doesn't all blend together. Yeah, well, I don't have proof that that's. Uh... You know, something that, that, that helps people remember. Uh, so this study looked at information graphics versus things in scientific journals versus things in newspapers. Um, I would love to, to see a study that actually took a report like this and saw how diversity of chart figures uh, help with things like retention. Uh, as far as I know, the only studies that have been done have been, you know, kind of like this piecemeal online study, Flash One, and see if you remember it. Uh, but something that's actually done in situ like this would probably bring out more of this... Uh, uh, contextually relevant uh, information in terms of a study. Um, but yeah, so you talk about creating some charts that are a little bit more difficult to read. Do you have any uh, in particular that you would like to cover? I'll, I'll let Jay uh, start us off. I actually, I, actually, I'm, I'm going to start us off. And, and but, but I think before we, we do that, just curious if there, and this is because there's, I think there's a number of folks that actually write their the vendor reports uh, that that listen to the podcast, and so a, a lot of why we do this is to help a lot of a lot of diverse folks out, not not just folks that are doing stuff in enterprises. 
And was there some kind of process that you you followed where you would generate? Because there are some new viz uh, uh, concepts with in, in this DBIR. So did you test it out on the team? Did you test it on a wider audience within uh, the Verizon community that's associated with the DBIR, or or did did you kind of go? I think this sort of works. Let's just run with it. Because I'm I'm just curious what the, maybe folks might be able to benefit from some of the process that you used. We actually so a lot of the figures come from the exploratory reports. Um, we have. Uh, now kind of two reports, one based on one uh, Jay previously did um, that's been expanded as well as a second report that kind of focuses on data over time where we went and looked at a lot of the, the figures we'd had in previous reports and regenerated them just adding new data. And so for a lot of the figures, in reality the whole team uh, when you had a section to review, they got a number of these reports that applied to that section and they could go through and look at dozens of um, visualizations of the data associated with the section they wanted to write. And then they could kind of go and pick out the, um, the visualizations that they wanted to include. But we really did try actually maybe even the opposite to draw on visualizations that have been used in years past. So like in the breach trend section, a lot of those figures are figures that have appeared in the last three or four DBIRs, but are updated with an additional year. Um, same for kind of keeping the standard um, architecture of the bar charts. Uh, and I don't know if anyone else realized this, but all the bar charts that deal with um, various enumerations, various being the um, schema that we use for uh, storing and managing our um, our incident data, all those are horizontal, um, and all the other bar charts are vertical. I'm going to try to provide some distinction. So there's another thing, um, talking about some of the themes in here, is uh, the line plots. Um, and there's a lot in the beginning, figures 3, 4, 6, 8, and 9. Um, and these are line plots where the actual value is a, a faint dotted line, and then there's a, a trend line. Um, some are, are straight, some are curved, some are low smoothing. And could you talk about these? And like, because there's a, a general theme to these, right? And then there's Figure Five, which we don't want to get at yet. But just the the other ones about the the smoothing lines and those dotted lines. It seems to be a theme in these first ones. You know, this is one of the things that um, actually got mentioned in some of the media um, presentations that we did. Um, as well as in feedback we got was people kind of looked and said, hey, it looks like maybe the DVR is kind of going back to kind of roots where they exist. And that was really the goal with some of these was to extend plots that had previously been the DVR. And in that case, a lot of the trend lines are what was used previously, uh, which gives me the opportunity to personally apologize for the trend lines in figure nine where the third-party trend line is absolutely horrendous, but it was a single trend out of the other three, and the other three kind of tell the story, which was the goal of the figure. And so I kind of let that trend line slide. But we also did try to take care to really mute the actual data, the line plots in the background, in favor of the darker trend lines, because we wanted people to capture the general concept over the specifics and not get confused by the dotted lines in the back. 
Actually, that, that, I think that's a great point you just brought up, and I wanted to see, um, and I wish I had asked Lane this before the podcast so he was ready for the question, but um, so Lane, what, what, what is your judgment kind of about that? Because I've been struggling with some of this on my own for, for, my, for the new gig that I've got, and you know, is, it, is it important to show all the work in every viz, or is it okay to you know, do the smoothing, not show the stuff behind the smoothing, sort of hide what the real data is just to kind of show the the point you were trying to show with the overlaid data or the the process data is 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 that an honest way of doing it or is that something that you would try to shy away from in something like this? Yeah, that's a that's a huge question. Um, here's here's how I think about it. Looking at these charts, uh, the first thing that struck out to me, you know, as we mentioned, was the the emphasis the emphasis on the trend line rather than the actual data. Uh, I would say it comes down to trust. You actually trust that trend line. Uh, people are going to look at this, and they might even try to make predictions. Um, but as we see from the actual raw data, um, there's variance that needs to be taken into account. And if a person misses that, they might, you know, make a wrong prediction in the coming years. Um, I, mean, I, I get showing a trend line. I also like showing raw data. The impact that that has on people's perception of uncertainty is something that's you know, more or less unknown to me. Uh, but if we take a, a cue from, you know, the people in the 80s, uh, they would say show show the data first and then sort of de-emphasize the trend line. Um, there's also the question of the underlying model that was used to produce, uh, whether that's an appropriate model for the data, um, those sorts of things that maybe a data scientist E person would think to ask, um, but others might not think to ask. Uh, so in terms of the trend lines, that's that's the first thing that comes to mind for me whenever I see the trend line is, you know, what's the what's the underlying assumption of the trend line? Do I trust that? So just to expand on that too, now given the type of report that this is, which is more of a an industry focused report for a general practitioner versus something that is going to be, you know, maybe the the make or break of your PhD, right? Is is there a difference in in how it might be treated for something like that or would it be something where you might throw the raw data or the raw figures or the more complex figures into an appendix um, and then put some of the more refined processed figures up front in the actual report itself? And I'm, I'm really doing this, again, to try to tease out what some folks might have questions for when they're trying to produce reports on their own and try to, to kick it up a notch. Because I think, you know, I think, Jay, we've been seeing a number of reports, uh, especially from Akamai recently, where they are including more complex plots uh, and different types of plots where this may be something that they're trying to ask and find out as well too. So hopefully this might be be, be some things they can chew on and, and noodle on to, to decide what they're going to do. Yeah, I think that's a, a great question, especially, you know, if you look at the, the, the trends whenever they start crossing each other and become more complex, could a person really tease that out if you were emphasizing the, the uh, raw data? Um, so that's a question. Uh, and, you know, if we're talking about a, a technical but not super technical audience maybe showing something at a higher level is what you want to do. Uh, Bob, I agree 100% with your notion of putting these in an appendix, uh, the raw data, so that people can dig into it further. Um, if, if, I mean, if I see something like this and I were really interested in it, that's probably one of the first things I would look for, especially if my team was going to make a sort of decision off of this or pursue a new line of investigation having access to the raw data or even different charts that are, you know, uh, have more fidelity, um, that would be incredibly valuable. Uh, and communicating that in the initial chart is, is something you want to do too, just like you want to communicate the type of model that was used to produce and 
these these maybe these issues with uncertainty, teaching people how to read the charts, uh, that could be a part of it too. Um, but yeah, pretty interesting. That is part of the reason we kind of emphasize the trend lines and really uh, purposefully de-emphasize the, um, the actual data. In fact, we had we had to have a conversation with the layout staff to make sure that they um, made the uh, underlying data all the to, that they reduced the alpha, made it all consistently small because some of them had very strong uh, data lines in the back, um, but some of them. They, they were all inconsistent. We tried to bring in the consistency. But for something like figure three or figure four, I want someone to look at figure three and go, financial is really important. Uh, espionage is, next, is the next most important and get a general idea of how the trends are going and then lump the other four together. And this is on uh, page seven. Yeah, and that kind of gets to my point. I mean, we don't know, and you know, hopefully uh, companies will fund research on this because it matters to them. Person looks at Figure Three. We have uh, financial is trending upwards. Uh, does that mean it's going to trend upwards in the next year? And I should make decisions that you know sort of follow that trend. And uh, espionage is actually going down uh, if I'm just paying attention to the trend lines. And we might assume that people are smart enough to look at the variance that's sort of hidden there, but we don't know how people process, process trend lines uh, whenever the raw data is shown next to it and actually come up with you know maybe what would come next. Cool. So, so speaking of complex charts uh, where there's a lot of data, I was wondering if, if, if Gabe, uh, you or Anna could talk to figure five, which is the threat action varieties in breaches over time. Uh, it's the first use, I think, of a parallel coordinate chart of this complexity in a small space uh, that I've seen in a DBR. I, I know some other ones had it in much larger, larger spaces. And uh, I was curious if you guys could talk about maybe the the design and the decision processes that went into doing that and some of the design choices you made to, to kind of put that out there. <laughs> sure. And, yeah, you're absolutely right. It would have been much clearer if it had been on, like, a whole page on its side versus crammed in the top quarter of the page. The reason the chart exists was to match the same uh, figure we saw in the 2013 DBIR. Um, and so it's in our exploratory reports that way. Uh, the reason I think we saw it in this report, it actually made it through, was not so much that it's a very clear chart all the way through, but at the very end it tells a single story. And that single story is that you see these specific actions together. Um, malware, command and control, uh, hacking use of stolen credentials, malware exporting data, uh, hacking use of backdoor, social phishing. Um, all and spyware and keylogging that are all lumped together, and in the text we tell the story about how that you know specifically represents um, the Drydex botnet campaign, and so really what we're not what we're trying to do in this figure is show these things all coming together as part of a single say subset of our breaches, and then lower down, seeing ramp scrapers, brute force, and to a lesser extent, backdoors coming together, representing a second subset of our data, the point-and-sale breaches. And by the way, this figure out of all of them, I think, is somewhere between 100 and 150 lines of R code to generate because there is no ggplot uh, parallel coordinates chart. And so there's a lot of hacks to make that thing actually happen. Have you, uh, have you gotten any feedback on figure five? Yeah, I don't know if any of it was good, though. 
That was going to be a I'll, I'll let you guys keep talking. I'll have some things to say in a second. Okay. Well, I'm trying to, you know, because I, I, I looked at this, and there are a lot of, there's a lot of motion in figure five. And all of the, you know, you're, you've got a lot of lines in there, and only the top, what, eight or nine or ten or something actually have colors. And the colors are in a specific palette that makes them, when they're in a line like that, somewhat hard to differentiate. Um, you know, like the blues, the, the Malware C2, oh, is it, no, Malware C2 and Malware Backdoor are very, very close. And in the thin line, it's very hard to pick out the colors. And so it's very difficult to try and actually pull a lot of meaning from figure five because, because it's so much motion, so many lines, and the colors aren't, aren't very well mapped and things like that. So it's very difficult. Like I looked at figure five and I thought, oh, I didn't even try, and I just went on. Now, now that you've actually explained some of the thought process behind it, I... I actually have focused now my attention on that last segment where there's the migration of a large number of of the different uh, hacking with the threat action varieties, and like you said, they were all oriented towards the the Drydex uh, component that that was pr pretty large in in the report, and I think maybe if you had tried could could have de-emphasized some of the other lines as well and just shown and focused in on that last one or had a secondary plot that focused in on that last one and talked to it that might have made that one pop out a, a little bit more more than it kind of has popped out. Yeah, this would have been a great place. So last year um, when Lane was on, one of the things he talked about um, was trying to annotate the plots, you know, explain what you're trying to say with the plot. And this would have been a good place to do that, you know, just put a circle around those um, groupings up in the upper right to draw people's eye to that and explain this is what you're seeing as these things come together. I actually forgot I said that, and I wrote the exact same note this year. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember you said that, Lane. That was one of the things that I wanted a huge takeaways for me last year was to, to annotate. Now most of the stuff I'm doing, I'm adding annotations and things like that in there. So, so thank you for that feedback last year. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is one of the, the best reports to do that in because the, the text is really driven from uh, the visualization and vice versa. Uh, one of the things I've seen some people do in, in clever academic papers is to do like a little A, B, C, D. And uh, what I haven't seen, though, and what would be great in a, a report like this is to really emphasize that, you know, the, if we're talking about this Dradex thing, um, to have a really big, bright A there, and then to be able to find that quickly in the text in either the previous or the same page, um, that will be that will be really exciting and help guide the user to kind of flip between the narrative and the visualization itself, especially for different parts that you're trying to find. Yeah, that will be super cool. Yeah, ultimately, what's interesting is this figure doesn't work as well in the actual report, but in a lot of the presentations... Um, for the DBR that we do, this chart has actually been pulled out, and it works really well in the presentations because you pull it out, and then you can call out that specific thing that you want people to take away from it, and, and they get it, right? It's busy, but once you point out what you want them to take away from it, they, they get it. They just get it. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the most powerful things about parallel coordinates plots, parallel coordinates plots kind of emerged, um, they really emerged in computer age. Um, so Alfred Enzerberg, I think in 89 or 90 or so, um, wrote the first you know, official paper on that. That's what most people refer to. It's debatable like where they actually came from. Um, but parallel coordinates plots, the real power is that, that, that whenever you have them in an interactive tool and you can do these brushing and linkings and uh, you can highlight on a particular axis and highlight subsets of them, kind of what you might do for the, the Drydex part uh, to explore trends. 
So parallel coordinates plots in print, I'm less sure about. Um, but definitely for, for interactive visualization, it, it's perfect for that. Um, actually, underexplored in the D3 space. I don't see many people using parallel coordinates plots. Actually, uh, a, and, yeah, I was going to say that the, the original version of this is actually the interactive type. Mm -hmm. um, and it had, you know, we flattened it out to get in the report, but, you know, I really should go back and dig out the original interactive one and see if I can put it up in our uh, figures repository. Yeah, and you want to add those simple things like where you, you know, kind of brush over one of the axes and highlight a subrange uh, so that people can sort of explore that and maybe mouse over a uh, one of these polylines to get the details. Um, that, that makes a lot of sense. I want to exactly. ask a question, though. Which of the, the, the lines jumps out the most? The red one. Yeah, and that's, that's super interesting to me. Is it the color? Yeah, I think, well, it's the color and it's the height around 2012, 2013, where it peaks up there and it's all alone. Like, that's one of the rare spots on this graph where there's a single line alone, and it's red. So, yeah. And it, it looks like it's it's one of the heavier lines in there, simply, I think, because of the coloring. Yeah, yeah and there's, there's not really okay. that many other lines that are really parallel to it compared to the other varieties. Yeah, that's the interesting thing about parallel coordinates plots is that you can sort of pick out these uh, visual outliers, you know, if that red had been another color, it probably would still stand out to some degree, I would think. Um, but picking out these visual outliers in a parallel coordinates plots that might not even show up in your statistics. Um, that's one of the, the things that parallel coordinates plots are, are pretty good for. Um, one thing I'll point out uh, this, this last year, um, where we sort of have this, uh, I'll call it a negative correlation, where most of the ones at the top go down and most of the ones at the bottom go up. Uh, so you sort of see a reversal in trend. I think one of the things that made that not pop uh, as much is uh, the fact that these uh, the, the axis labels are actually feeding into the lines a little bit. They're not as well spaced out as they were on the other ones. So if you were to reverse this and have 2009-2010 be 2014-2015, uh, that trend might show up a, a little bit better because actually uh, my research shows that people perceive negative correlations at parallel coordinates plots much more readily than they do positive correlations. Positive correlations are whenever you have lines going perfectly parallel. And to perceive a correlation, you actually have to count how many parallel lines there are. But with negative correlations, you're just kind of looking for this crossing in the middle, uh, which creates essentially a line uh, that's very easy to attend to um, to look at negative correlations. So one thing that we suggested at the end of that paper, if you wanted to, to emphasize correlations, uh, you can do this sort of axis flipping uh, trick to show as many negative correlations as possible. Now that might make people read your axes funny, uh, but it could show correlations in the data. That's interesting, Lane. That's a, a really interesting yeah. finding. Actually, and it brings up an interesting question. You you mentioned the labels, and one of the things or one of the issues was that because this is not, you know, in the code, it's not an actual parallel coordinates chart. I had to manually pick the labels, and so I picked basically. Uh, roughly five levels per um, axis, but I couldn't find any good guidance on how many labels should I have per axis. Oh yeah, automatic labeling. That's, uh, I'm actually not familiar with the research on that. There's been some recent stuff uh, done from, I think, Autodesk Research um, that might, might be of interest, um, but as far as I know, there's not many work in uh, how people perceive and read labels and you know what the guidelines are there. Um, Actually, if any biz people are listening and want to educate me on that, I welcome it. PhDs don't know everything. We were talking about that. <laughs> Who thinks that? Some PhDs. Mm -hmm. No, that's true. 
the, the only other thing I would add, um, the, something that occurred to me immediately were the axes, um, that the axes have different ranges, especially the top ranges. Um, that's sort of like a, what are people calling it these days, a viz smell, um, something to be wary of because that way you can sort of distort patterns. Um, I'm not sure what the actual guidance here would be, though, uh, especially if you had one axis that sort of blew out the other ones. You might you know, not be able to see trends across the rest of the visualization. So uh, at least the axis labels are there loud and clear, and they're actually not all across the top, so it's a little bit easier to, to tell that something's going on. Um, so it was pretty easy to pick up on that. I mean, if they actually all had been the same range in the axis, it effectively would have just been a line plot as opposed to parallel coordinates. Yes, because it's going across years. Uh, the one thing that occurred to me is that you could actually put uh, your polylines could be the year and your uh, malware hacking and all your other categories could actually become the axes. I'm not sure what trends that would show, uh, but that could be interesting. It really is an interesting idea. I don't know what it would show. Me neither. It might be a terrible idea. <laughs> So, so to maybe riff off of the one of the reasons why you you did do this chart, which is which is dry decks. Were there any other uh, chart design decisions based upon the prevalence of dry decks in the DBIR dataset this year? No, and dry decks was a really interesting thing to handle to handle, and it brings out kind of a a bigger question, right? Because the question is how to handle the subsets of data because there's another subset of data. So Drydex was a subset that we were aware of and we knew that it skewed a lot of the figures. In fact, you know, if you look at something, um, a good example would be figure nine on page 11. Um, law enforcement detection is up primarily because law enforcement detected all these Drydex, uh, took down the Drydex botnet, detected all of these uh, Drydex compromises in that way. And because that's a percentage, it pushed down um, the other detections um, as a percentage. Now, when we went and we talked about it, we knew Drydex was large and it would bias uh, a lot of the results. But we went back and looked at the raw data and it was legitimate data. It wasn't an anomaly. It wasn't, you know, something that was not really that wasn't very fleshed out in the raw data, it was there. And so we went and looked and we said, okay, well, I guess we'll leave it in, but that's comparative to the um, the uh, secondary motive data, which we had, I think, 20,000 secondary compromises um, that we actually left out because it skewed the data but didn't offer additional insight into it. Regarding dry decks, um, what we should have done or what we will do in the future um, is regarding skewness, there's actually, we can apply a transformation in order to reduce the skewness. Uh, so depending, you know, so for a transportation uh, transformation, you replace a variable with a function of that variable. So um, you can reduce, if it's right, right skewed, then you can take the root or, you know, take logs or reciprocals. If it's left skewed, um, to reduce it, you take the squares or cubes or some higher power. Um, so with a positive skewness, you take, you know, that's, it, it pretty much is an ex extreme data results are larger, and then with a negative skewness, it's extreme data results uh, are smaller. So there are methodologies in order to actually uh, address the skewness issue. So that's probably something that I would like to do. 
um, during the summer to look to see what uh, the visuals and everything would look like with um, skewness reduced for dry decks. Yeah, I kind of like this idea um, from a presentation's perspective. Uh, looking at Figure Nine, uh, we were talking about dry decks. You know, the, if you can present a, a what if scenario, what if dry decks wasn't there, what the proportions look like, um, that can be interesting to people. Similarly, with uh, Figure Three, um, going back to this sort of uh, financial going, you know, sort of up, espionage kind of staying the same. Um, we have ideology, grudge, and everything else down at the bottom. Uh, you know, one of the notes that I had here was if you could zoom in on that and sort of say, what if espionage and financial weren't as big as they were? Uh, what are the trends that are sort of hiding in this this bottom part? Maybe people would care about that. One of the challenges we have is um, a length issue, right? This report, the the first draft was basically 100 pages, and so, you know, and in fact, there were a significant number of figures, probably half of them, that were cut out of the uh, breach the breach trends section alone. And so, how does you know, if your choice is between including two views of figure three versus, you know, a breakout of <clears throat> some other aspect of the data, how would you balance those? I would lean towards I mean, what we've talked about before, more richly integrating the, uh, the visualizations with the text and the narrative. Um, so that would, you know, kind of be a limp issue, too. Um, I see some opportunities just in the chart itself. You've got a huge amount of white space in figure three, um, both in between the uh, the two massive lines and uh, out into the side. Um, so if you're if you're paying your your graphic designer team that knows how to edit Adobe Illustrator files, uh, you can pay them to do that sort of thing. Uh, if I can do it for my academic publications uh, on a tight budget and tight deadline, I'm sure the very talented people um, making these could could do the same thing. If it helps tell a story. So you're right about, you know, kind of throwing it into the exploratory process, how that can kind of balloon up. Uh, I've seen that in my own data analysis because we're doing that. What if we do have this subset of population? Um, that's, that's definitely a concern. But, you know, kind of telling a richer story with one chart. Uh, and these, you know, we talk about annotations. We talk about what-if scenarios. I mean, honestly, I got a lot of out of the, the DBIR both years I've looked at it just from reading through the figures and then sort of referring to the text as, as needed. Uh, so it would be interesting to know how many people are sort of reading through, you know, the entire narrative and how many people are just kind of skipping through there. And if they're skipping through there, maybe you want things that capture their attention and sort of push them towards the narrative. Um, I'm sure your marketing people could even get behind that. Thank you. That sounds good. All right. Well, why don't we jump into uh, the next figure? The one thing that I wanted to get into were um, figures 10 and what was the other one? 20... 10 and 46, and these are two, uh, I'll call them pseudo, blocks, pseudo box plots with uh, some points overlaid on top of them. And they're trying to show a distribution. Both of them are trying to show a distribution. Could you talk through that? I mean, first, there's the, the initial problem of this is the, the light blue, the baby blue with that light gray on top. The, the colors kind of blur together. There's not a lot of contrast, so it's hard to see them. Um, but when I, when I first saw it, I thought I saw a box plot and when you have a box plot, you've got the, the box and the line going up. And then beyond the line, you get these points for outliers. And when I started seeing these points go over the box, uh, I, was, I was confused. And so just looking at initially, it did not match what I expected to see there. So could you go through your thought process and, and what those points are representing? Sure. So, and, and I'll 
focus. They're really, the concept is the same for both figures 10 and 46, and so I'll focus on uh, figure 46. The basic idea is I want people to look at this and go, oh, there's where the data is. So in 46, um, whether you understand anything about box plots or not, you look at it and you go, the stuff is on the left side. And if you tilt your head way to the left, you see it's legal guidance and forensics. Now, we actually had a pretty robust conversation internally, and Anna can comment on it, about the, the whiskers on the box plot. And the idea was, in general, if we put them on, what would they be? Would you go the entire range of the data? Would you go 1.5 IQR in her quartile range? Um, you know, there's a few different definitions for what the whiskers could be. On the other hand, would most people understand it or would most people have to kind of, would that draw away from that concept of here is where the data is that the, the box plot kind of represents? And ultimately, I, I tr think we tried to, um, to compensate for it by saying, okay, well, we'll just put the points on it, which people can figure out that lots of points in a single location is where the data is. It's another way of representing that. If you have all the points represented, you don't really need the um, the whiskers because you're not you don't need to represent the IQR and you don't need to represent the range of the data. Hmm. Okay. Boy, Lane, did you want to talk about that one? I I know that you I think you might have liked it. <laughs> I did actually. Um, as I was reading through and I saw some you know, bar charts uh, and you know, some trend lines and that sort of thing, uh, I was really impressed to see figures 10 and figures uh, 46 later on. Um, to actually show the underlying data. Um, so I put like triple check marks next to that. It's always interesting whenever you're showing things like uh, you know, mean and a distribution of data to show the, the raw and underlying data. And uh, what, what came to mind is that, you know, one, you want to see where the outliers are and what the sh overall shape of the data was, um, kind of like Anna was talking about before. That's really interesting to see. It lets you know, you know is the mean being pushed up um, by a set of outliers. Um, so I always appreciate seeing that. Now, Jay, to your point on a uh, box plot, uh, the reason why I didn't think the, the showing the box plot was a, was a bad thing is because I didn't expect much. Um, so, so people who really know the definition of box plots as they're defined, maybe they studied it, um, they have a, an idea of what a box plot should be and the components of the box plot that should be there. I would suspect, though, for an average reader, um, box plot just means this is where most of the data is. If you're familiar with the box plot, that's what you say. Uh, and here's the upper side of the data and the bottom side of the data, and there's stuff outside of it. Um, so in, in that sense, I'm okay with it. Even then, though, I, I could make the point that, you know, showing a box plot, I don't know, why, why even do it? Why not just show the, you know, the, the, the points? You know, why do you actually need a geometric shape there? Uh, whenever you start getting geometric shapes, people tend to make uh, geometric comparisons. Uh, and that can be bad. Um, so on figure 46, you might start comparing those as a bar, uh, especially if you're an untrained user. That could be a bad thing. Um, yeah. So was, yeah go ahead. And actually, that's a good point as far as, you know, can you just show the dots? And, you know, my, my gut feeling is that the points overlap enough that um, it would be impossible if we just had the data points in there to tell where the, you know, the... Um, the uh, quartiles were. And so you have to kind of have at least the lines for the box plot to articulate where the quartiles are. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm getting at. Like, you, you definitely need the lines there. Um, 
but you can have lines without an actual geometric shape that people might compare by accident. Uh, we've seen some made that way. Um, one of the interesting things, um, bringing in a little bit of research about uh, point clouds, um, there has been some research that says that people are fairly accurate at estimating, uh, given a set of uh, a point cloud, which one is higher. Um, so people are, are fairly good at that. So if you give them a distribution of points and you give them a second di distribution of points, they can sort of you know, look at these and, and kind of reason out which one is higher. Um, so that study that I'm thinking of actually put the point clouds together like in a scatter plot. Um, but I could see that being true here too. Um, so people have sort of a built-in mechanism for coming up with means um, that's, that's fairly accurate. Uh, so yeah, I think, you know, overall, it's, it's good to show the data. Um, you know, we need to be careful with box plots and our definitions of a box plot. Uh, I never trust a box plot. Um, I basically always assume that the definition could be anything. Uh, and in this case, you know, who, who knows what it actually is if it's not actually explicitly defined. Um, so that's important to, to show also. And, you know, it's also, you can think about the, you know, who made the box plot in the beginning. It was Tukey, and Tukey was working with, um, you know, in an era where most of the data was hand-drawn. Um, so the reason why, you know, Tukey made the box plot um, was to actually help with drawing data uh, rather than, you know, as a, a reasoning tool that we're, we're going to use from here on out. Uh, so we need to think maybe beyond the box plot. Yeah, I absolutely agree with Jay that these are not the traditional definition of a box plot. And, you know, that if, if I were writing this for, um, say, the group that's probably listening to or uh, on this podcast, I would definitely have done the traditional structure for one. And I think Anna would have preferred the traditional structure as well. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, this just gives us the ability to communicate roughly similar concepts to a crowd without having to teach them about what a box plot is. I, I gotta go back though. Did Lane just say that box plots are, are old school and no longer applicable? I didn't say they're no longer applicable. I just said that as we're, I mean, there's been some interesting research out of the University of Wisconsin in recent years that talks about error bars are considered harmful. They distort perception of, of the actual underlying data. Um, so I imagine the whiskers in a box plot might do a similar thing. Um, and that doesn't apply if you're, you know, someone who's really well trained and you know how to interpret these things. Uh, but for the everyday person and a lot of scientists, yeah. even, uh, we, we haven't been through that. Um, so, so, you know, there's, there's a need to help people uh, understand so we can either teach them, you know, we should teach them. But we should also be exploring different visual representations given that we have all this nice uh, uh, you know, technology at our fingertips and you know, our community, uh, what are the, the better ways of presenting this data? And I, I would suspect that there are better ways of presenting this data. So in, in figures 10 and 46, <clears throat> a couple of things that stuck out for me. Um, without the, the lines going on the box plots, I mean, one of the reasons that you put them on there is because one and a half times that interquartile range from the 25th to the 75th percentile, it gives you some estimation. That's one way to try and identify outliers. And so you put that line in there to say, this is where it is. Anything beyond that is probably an outlier. This is one of the things that Tukey wrote about. Um, and so without that line, it's kind of hard to see that. But then the points here, because they're all on, a, on one vertical axis, um, I couldn't tell like if there are points on top of one another. 
And that's one of the reasons that I didn't like that lane because of the distribution, showing a distribution, but you know, the, the gray and the blue kind of blurs in there over the box and outside of the box. You don't know if there's one or 50 points. I mean, it's only N equals 41, but um, I don't know in there. So in there, maybe a jitter or something. Another option might be doing a violin plot. I don't know, Lane, do you have any thoughts on a violin plot here? I haven't seen a violin plot studied, but that is a way um, to show this. That's actually something that came to mind, too. And, yes, I agree with you. There should be opacity there, perhaps, to, to show where overlaps are. Um, there's some principal ways of coming up with, you know, sort of optimal opacity to communicate that data is denser. Uh, one, one easy way to do it is to, to just say, you know, what the N actually is and kind of make that front and center. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's, that's what's interesting to me is, like, here's this line that people should be exploring, uh, this line of research to, to come up with better recommendations because um, these, these charts are here and people are using them for communication. I agree on the color. I, you know, I probably should have used the color from figure 35 on page, I think, 49, where that uses uh, purple dots and it actually has opacity. Um, I should have carried that over into the box plots. Um, and speaking of violin plots, um, I have to admit one of my favorite figures is from the... Um, PHI data breach report that we did last year, and really Bob deserves the credit for it. There's a very nice looking um, uh, violin plot in that that not only looks good and tells a story, but it's also well uh, annotated. I'll, I'll add to Bob's uh, skill with the violin plot. I saw him give an R workshop, and uh, it's sort of everything kind of crescendoed whenever Bob got to the, the beautiful violin plot at the end. It's like a plotting symphony. Vi vi violin crescendo. Oh yeah, I totally meant to say that. That was not unintentional. That was completely intentional. Oh, so before Jake goes into a couple other ones, I, I am curious as to the decision to keep this, the hundred percent stream plots in this year, because I I could have sworn there was a lot of discussion around the October-ish time frame when when I might have still been there that we that that might not have been a thing for the 2016 DBIR. Yeah. Um. They're not going to be there next year, um, <laughs> other than maybe the the insider versus outsider, um, internal versus external figure, and I'm trying to find others. Figure two on page seven. Um, I think that one works well and gives kind of a general idea, and it's usable from a kind of historical perspective. You could compare year over year. But the pattern ones... Um, I think we primarily put them in. We knew that they didn't um, particularly tell the story well. Uh, we just kind of included them for both for since we had them last year, as well as for just they kind of provided a very bright color, um, maybe maybe a chance to wake people up in between all the light blue, something along those lines. It definitely wakes people up. Um, I, I told you whenever I looked at Figure Two first. The first time I see this uh, this big swath of blue, and I think the ocean. I see the green, and I see like a mountainous sea coast, and the uh, the the yellow and pink up there. I see a sunset. So I was kind of relaxed and dreaming coming into this. Um, I will say those charts should go away. Um, the textbook. If you look at the uh, from 2010 to 2011, um, an average person would perceive that as a trend going up. Whenever the trend is in fact going down. Um, it's very difficult to reason with with these sort of you know percentage-based stream graphs. Um, it's it's just because they look like lines and people will see up and they read them as a line chart. It's uh, difficult to train. Difficult to train. 
I think we're running low on time. So, um, Lane, did you have one thing that you wanted to uh, end on? Yeah, I was just going to end on a positive note. Um, I actually really enjoy reading the report every year. Um, so now that I'm at WPI officially as an assistant professor, I've started to, to gather students who are interested in cybersecurity. Uh, and they were very excited to see the report this year. And uh, it's been useful, um, even though, you know, we don't care about cybersecurity, uh, you know, here at WPI, um, from an academic perspective, uh, this report has been very useful to, to help us kind of figure out where can we help instead of helping people, um, helping, you know, people to do uh, security analysis. Uh, so this has been helpful for that. Yeah, and, and I just want to uh, thank, I know Jay, Jay's going to thank Lane again too, but I want to thank him especially, to be honest, and especially uh, for his students too. His students have been really helpful. I, I've had the opportunity to interact with them quite a bit over the last six months. Uh, I, I'm going to attribute their their intelligence to their, their professor's intelligence because they have a lot of really great ideas. So if, if I, I'm just going to get a plug in for WPI since you were gracious enough to come on link for this. It, it, if you're looking to do viz work um, at a more academic level and to maybe get your master's degree or PhD, Lane would be an awesome person to work under. That's true. I do advise students. I can give out PhDs now. All right. Well, th uh, thanks everyone for joining us. Lane, definitely thank, thank you to you for uh, being the, uh, the academic uh, liaison on this one. And yep. Anna, thank you for coming on. Yep, thank you. And Gabe, thank you for joining us as well. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. And thank you, Lane, for um, providing such wonderful feedback, both on the figures we did do as well as the figures that we will hopefully do next year. And thank you again for making an awesome report. Data Driven Security Podcast is produced by Bob Rudis and Jay Jacobs and is a Creative Commons endeavor. Feel free to syndicate the content, just give us an act back. And if you like our podcast, please visit us on your favorite podcasting service and provide feedback and or rating. To submit your questions, suggest a topic, or share your experiences, please visit the topic request link on the Data Driven Security blog. The short link for that is dds.ec q. Be sure to check out the book, Data Driven Security, anywhere fine books, perhaps obscure books, are sold.